Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, as well as equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary and Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Ken Shank. Uh, Ken is a professor of New Testament, as well as vice president of planning and innovation at Houghton College. Ken is an old uh, teacher and dear friend of mine. Uh, not that he's uh, too old, not much older than me, in fact, but uh, but old in the sense of we go way back. Uh, he was my college professor and then was my dean when I was first starting out as a professor. Uh, but now he's off at Houghton and uh, just such a joy to have him on the show so often. Uh, he's just an amazing scholar of the New Testament and the author of uh, nearly a dozen books. So just search his name on uh, Amazon and you'll find a bunch of great stuff that he's written mostly in the uh, field of New Testament studies, but in some other areas as well. Uh, so just such a delight to have Ken on to discuss a great area of expertise for him, uh, which is Paul's letters. So our text this week is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 1. So 2 Corinthians 4, 13 through 5, 1. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show along to others so that they may benefit too. And lastly, if you'd like to support the show as well as receive some additional content, simply go to patreon.com slash fresh text to become one of our patron saints. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Ken. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse 13 through five, one. But just as we have the same spirit of faith that is in accordance with scripture, quote, I believed and so I spoke, end quote. We also believe and so we speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. Yes, everything is for your sake so that grace as it extends to more and more people may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we don't lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure, because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. And then we'll tack on a... The first verse of the next chapter, where we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. The word of God for the people of God. <laughs> Let it be. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks uh, for your word. We give you thanks for your apostle Paul, who spoke these words they were written down and handed on uh, to his churches and been handed on and preserved to the churches of all ages. And we ask now, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see and hear what it is you have for us 
in this text before us. So illumine our eyes and minds and hearts. Open our ears, ourselves, to the word of your gospel. We ask this not only for Ken and I, but for all those listening in. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, whom you raised from the dead and in whom is our hope for resurrection and life. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. This is a great, so, great passage. Yeah. I've, what I've, do you love about it? <laughs> I've often found it hard to, or I initially years ago found it difficult to follow all of the train of thought, although I may still not know, but I just am comfortable with the way I've I've come to read it. But uh, just bottom line for me is that there is a, a kind of participation in Christ I see in this passage. We see it in, you know, like Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live the life that I now live. I, I live in the faithfulness of the Son of God or in the faith of the Son of God. There's a kind of, uh, I've been buried with Christ in, in baptism. Here, I think the logic is, again, this is a matter of some debate, but Jesus had faith in God. And he spoke that faith in God, and God raised him from the dead. And so we also express our faith in God and confess our faith in God, and we will also be raised with Christ from the dead. We have that same spirit of faith that Christ had when he confessed his trust in God, and that the one who raised Jesus will raise also us and present us with him. Anyway, I'll I'll just stop there now. I'm I'm going in a particular direction and seeing Jesus is quoting this, I believed, and I ah. and I have spoken, as opposed to just the psalmist in general. I'm sorry if I'm going too too deep into a particular kind of interpretation of this passage. But this was the passage. So again, I'm sorry, I'm just I'm, I'm diving way ahead of where probably <laughs> anybody listening to this is. But there is a long-standing debate in biblical scholarship about whether Paul had a category for the faithfulness of Jesus, the so-called pistis Christu debate, the faith of Jesus debate. This was the passage that convinced me that Paul ah. had that perspective. Now, of course, Paul believes in our faith in Jesus as well, but there are a number of passages, in, or there are passages in Galatians and Romans and Philippians where the grammar can be read, the faith of Jesus. Right. And um, this is the passage when, I, when you dig into the psalm that is being quoted here, and I, maybe that's maybe this is too heavy. Maybe, no, I think it's great because this psalm just over. sounds like it's on the lips of Jesus. It's so powerful. And um, uh, Richard Hayes, of course, wrote some pretty well-known pieces on, well, he has a famous article, Jesus Praying the Psalms, that the early Christians interpreted many psalms as if they were on the lips of Jesus. This one is not as quite as, as definitive as some of the other ones. Book of Hebrews has Jesus praying Psalm 40. When Jesus comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offer offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. There's a number of places where Jesus prays the Psalms. Uh, and there's one in Acts, maybe, where it kind of at least indirectly when it when it quotes saying, Well, David said this, but it wasn't true of him, so it must be right. So right. The, the the pattern is there in the New Testament. But and then, maybe, maybe we, even if we throw all that out, there is this sense that just as God raised Jesus from the dead, 
our confession of faith in the God who raised Jesus from the dead, which is clearly, clearly uh, Romans 4 is very clear about us having faith in the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And by the way, Paul never puts it, he arose. It's always God raised him from the dead. The book of Acts, right. the book of Acts doesn't say Jesus rose from the dead. It says God raised him from the dead. And so there's this sense that we have faith. He, Hebrews 5, he had faith in the one who could save him out of death or see, how does Hebrews put it exactly? Something like that. He believed or he obeyed the one who could save him out of death. We, we, we're not used to thinking of Jesus in these terms. We think of Jesus as the super, super Jesus. Yeah. And we don't think of him often as having faith because he just knew, he just knew how it was going to play out. But uh, I think there's a much but, better biblical case to make that Jesus played it by the human rules, including being a model of, of faith in God, the father while he was on earth. And Hebrews, I think, 5 makes that very clear. He learned obedience by the things that he suffered, that, that sort of, of line of thinking. One way or another, though, we trust that the same God that raised Jesus from the dead can raise us from the dead uh, here in, in this uh, passage. Well, okay, I'm talking a lot. Jump in. There. I love it. It's awesome. It's so great. Well, I love it because you mentioned this this old debate, and we don't have to get into the weeds, but to recognize that it's not a all or nothing question. It's not that every time Paul says that we're saved by faith, that every single time he uses that word faith, he's always talking about Jesus' faith in God, nor is every single time a, have to be a reference to our putting our faith in Jesus. And, and here, it sounds like this helped you come to that kind of mediating position that recognizes that both of these are at work, and he puts his faith in the God who raised him from the dead. And we put our faith not merely in the God who raised him, though yes, so he's not just the model. Like you said at the beginning, participation, we're also putting our faith in Christ as the one who was raised, that we will see him at the end and stand before him and stand together with him in the presence of God. So there's this kind of multi-directional movement of God's raising Jesus, the hope that God will raise us and us being raised with him. That's used twice in verse 14, right? Knowing that the one who raised the Lord Jesus, also us with Jesus will raise or raises. I'd have to ask you about the, and will you know, stand alongside with you, right? So there's this being gathered together, even though he's writing this letter at a distance. So when you mention the train of thought, there's like all these different characters. There's God who raises, there's the Lord Jesus who was raised and who is to come. And this kind of presence, this parousia that's still to come. And there's you, the listeners to this, uh, the receivers of this letter, as well as us, the authors, right? There's all these different characters that are kind of being all drawn together by this Easter faith, this resurrection faith. Am I tracking you or did I, did I mu muddy it up? <laughs> no, no. You usually have people take one or the other position. So you have the, the it's just faith in Jesus position which is the person I actually studied under. Dunn is known for that position. Then you have this fellow at Duke, I mentioned, Richard Hayes, who's known for, no, it's all the faithfulness of Jesus. And I think, you know, Paul's just laughing in heaven uh, because they're both, both present in various places. Here's a verse that convinced many others, Romans 5, 19, just as the, 
the disobedience of one person constituted many as sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, many will be confirmed righteous. And the the obedience of the one man being Jesus. And of course, we did together, Philippians 2, obedience, even death on a cross. You know, he became obedient unto death. Yes. Even death on a cross. So there's actually, and this is something we Protestants, I think, often miss, this theme of Jesus as an example of faith as a human being, modeling for us what human faith looks like. And here in this passage, it's faith in the middle of suffering, faith in the middle of trial, that Jesus underwent horrible suffering and pressure. I mean, you think of him in the Garden of Gethsemane and so forth as he's walking toward the cross and all of that conflict. Paul is in that situation. I mean, the Corinthians maybe maybe don't feel it even as much as Paul. I personally think Paul has just been released from jail when he writes 2 Corinthians, not too long, that he actually was afraid that Philippians is, is before this, you know, that he writes, for me to live as Christ, for me to die as gain. He's been jailed in Ephesus. He's not sure if he's going to, to make it. And then Acts 1.8, I mean, uh, 2 Corinthians 1.8, he says, we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters, on behalf of the, our tribulation that, that took place for us in Asia, how uh, exceedingly we were burdened and, and were afraid we were about to lose our life. He's come from an incredibly pressurized situation. I don't know that the Corinthians feel quite as stressed as he is, but he has been incredibly stressed of late when he's writing uh, this part of 2 Corinthians, uh, in my opinion. And so he's looking to the sufferings of Christ as a model for getting through that even if you end up facing death, you know, that the God who raised Jesus from the dead will raise you up no matter what crisis or no matter what situation you might be faced. He's recently faced this situation where he was afraid he was, and I'm sorry, I'm giving a lot of shanky kind of idiomatic interpretations, but I obviously have lots of thoughts about where Paul's at mentally and spiritually when he's writing these words. I love it when you have a take, it's more fun that way. So, and you got a take on this text, so I dig it. That raises a question that I'll pose and we'll take a break and come back and and start there. And that's this question of how much of Christ's sufferings and the life of Jesus, right? The life of Jesus and its sufferings was Paul aware of? How much did he preach the life of Christ? These are interesting questions that I think are relevant to how we'll make sense of this text and ultimately how we will apply it. So, I want to put that question out there and start there after the break. Sound good? Okay. All right, and we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Ken Shank, and talking about 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 13 through 5. One, how about I just read it again so that it's okay. fresh in our ears sure. uh, for us and our audience? This is ESV with, a, with occasional JDV twists, perhaps. Here we go. So this is uh, 13 and following. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to which as it has been written, I have faith, and so I spoke. We also have faith, and so we also speak, knowing that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us 
with you. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase with good graces to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer humanity is wasting away, our inner humanity is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to not the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tabernacle that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. The word of the Lord. (laughs) Yeah, so boy, like you said, we hear Paul's sufferings there. The Corinthians themselves may not be suffering at that moment, but he anticipates that they will and all face the suffering of death just by being mortal human beings. And then you've got these uh, explicit references to Jesus' resurrection. And the question that I wanted to put to you is, what, what are the clues here that, that there's some implicit references to, to Jesus' death and his suffering unto death and his life of obedient faith? How much of this story of Jesus does Paul know? He talks about it so little. And so, these Psalms, as thinking of those on the lips of Jesus, actually helps us give a window into a little bit of what Paul may have understood. Of course, unlike the other famous apostles, he wasn't with Jesus from the beginning. So, of course, those stories were not, they didn't have the same personal impact that they did for them. Of course, the Gospels hadn't even been written down yet at this time, although the, surely the stories were being told. So, it's, a, it's an interesting question. And I was just wondering what your because it seems that you're operating with an assumption that he had some sort of knowledge, awareness of this life of Jesus and his sufferings. What, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, that's a that's an age-old question. How, how much did, did uh, I mean, there are extremes as always, those who would say Paul knew nothing about Jesus except that he died and rose from the dead. And, and others who would say, well, of course, he would have known all of the material in the Gospels. As far as what we have evidence for, you know, of course, uh, there's that statement in 1 Corinthians 7, where he says, and this I say, well, it's not me, it's it's the Lord, where some think he's passing on Jesus' tradition. Romans 12 bears a, a striking resemblance at some points to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but it is true, Paul doesn't seem, or at least in his letters, he doesn't manifest an extensive engagement with the teaching of Jesus. Now, That's a great phrase that you just used. Doesn't manifest an extensive engagement with, right? So right. that's not the same as doesn't betray a knowledge of. He might know about it. And, and of course, yeah. I always I always say how how strange it is that the, the letters we have are the cleanup on aisle six. Right, that, right. <laughs> that, you know, Paul spent years at some of these places preaching. I mean, like, for example, the cross even. From what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, I take it that the cross was central to Paul's preaching. And yet, really, it doesn't show up too prominently in his letters, in in my opinion. And so here's an example of where we might get a false impression from Paul's letters about what he actually emphasized when when he was in person. I mean, that's not I'm not arguing that yeah, he preached the Sermon on the Mount every every Tuesday, 
but absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. That's another bingo. Yeah, that's good. Well, there's one little reference here that honestly didn't grab me until I heard you beginning to interpret the text as a participation in Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection. And it suddenly occurred to me that this phrase, a house not made with hands, and even the word destroy, the destruction of a tabernacle or a tent, and then one that's being raised up, not made with hands. I mean, this, this is bringing us in very close proximity to important statements in the Gospels in the trial of Jesus. And he's talking uh, about bodies, I would say. This is not, yes. I've got a mansion just over there. Oh, no. He's talking about. He's talking about a resurrection body here. Absolutely. So not made with hands, but still made, right? This isn't the survival of a soul that chucks off the body. It's a new house made, not with human hands, but implicitly with divine hands. And of course, it's not like Corinthians 15 is in the background here. Yes. Paul says, you know, uh, that it's a package deal. If Jesus is raised, we're raised. Bingo. Um, If we're not raised, then Jesus wasn't raised. It's all, it all goes together. He's the firstborn of the dead. And because, because he lives, I can face resurrection. You know, there's there's a guarantee. (laughs) Yes, yes. And you mentioned that you, I think it's not irrelevant that you mentioned the guarantee, which is language used of the spirit, which is also referenced here as the spirit of faith. But of course, you know, we don't have capitalizations in the original and we've come to have this technical term, the Holy Spirit, but sometimes it's, sometimes it's spirit of holiness and spirit of faith here would have some connection Again, we don't want to read a bunch of Trinitarian language into it, but we also don't want to make the opposite mistake of only seeing references, only seeing spirit talk as like some of them are capitalized and some of them aren't. You know, it's like this spirit of faith that was in Jesus is also in us. That's pretty clearly the the train of thought in verse uh, 13 there. And so then this language then in chapter five, verse one, how there were witnesses And I'm thinking what you're talking about, the confession of faith that Jesus had in his trial. And of course, again, Luke and Acts, obviously Acts is a much later text and has other influences. But nevertheless, the book of Acts clearly narrates the trial of Paul in parallel to the trial of Jesus, right? That those resonances were on Luke's mind. And Paul himself makes reference to that in Colossians and other places that Philippians, that the sufferings of Christ are being worked out in his own suffering. So the fact that in the trial of Jesus, witnesses were called that said, but they couldn't agree that he said something about tearing down the temple or the, you know, the tent, the house, and that a new house would be built up um, made and the made without hands appears in some of those witnesses. Now they can't get their story straight. And there's a temple made without hand or a tabernacle made a house made without hands reference, I believe, in the book of Hebrews too, right? Ken, you would know. Yeah, oh yeah. Made without hands. Absolutely. That's so this a made without theme in Hebrews. This made without hands theme is a very important it's across the New Testament. And of course and it idols, has resurrection meaning, right? And it's, idols are made with hands. Yes. So this is great anti-pagan Jewish lingo, right? Not made with hands is like code for, you know, good Jewish of, faith. Right. Where's, where's that passage? Jesus made the good confession before Pilate. Where is that? Oh, isn't that in Second uh, Peter or First Peter? I don't remember exactly, but 
Oh, I'll look it up. Anyway, this will be fun. First oh, Timothy yeah, six twelve. Timothy, my bad. First Timothy six my twelve. Bad. So he made his Timothy, good confession. See, so I mean, that's great. Sort of, they, they, we're collecting up some of these texts to kind of paint a picture of a of an awareness that you know these early Christians were even before the Gospels were written, sort of aware of this. Uh, Jesus, not just as this cosmic resurrected one, although that's clearly the the punchline. Yeah. Um, but the setup to that is one who underwent great earthly suffering and was a teacher and preacher and had predicted that he would die and rise again. The, right, the three prediction passions in Mark, and you know, as you get a version of this in John chapter two, it's very strange when he says he'll tear down the temple and and I'll raise it up again in three days. So you have this kind of temple of the Holy Spirit imagery that in Paul, we're very used to as talking about the church. But when Jesus says it, when it appears in the trial, we tend to think he's talking about his death and resurrection. But I think the deep insight of this passage is that those aren't two different things, right? The the new temple not made with hands is referring to his risen body. It's referring to our risen bodies in the future, but it's also referring to the church in the time between his raising and our raising. Yeah. So you almost get sort of three meanings, this sort of three spiritual senses of the, of the tabernacle or the tent or the body of Christ. Well, uh, or just ancient, right? Uh, Those are the three, right? Allegorical, tropological, anagogical sense, right? The, (laughs) by the way, you mentioned, you mentioned the spirit. And of course the spirit is a major theme in, in second Corinthians three, um, where he basically, you know, talks about the Lord is transforming us from glory to glory, according to the Lord, the Spirit. Anyway, a lot of that that idea of, of we're constantly being transformed. We are growing in grace. We are we are becoming more like Christ. We are being conformed to His image. You know, we'll be conformed to the image of His Son. You see some overtones here that our inward person is being renewed day by day, even though our outward body is passing. Another thing that I, we haven't mentioned, I'm sorry, I'm all, I'm all over the place today. There has been some conflict between Paul and the Corinthian church that is also right before Second Corinthians. He's written them a harsh letter that he had burned. I mean, it hasn't survived. And he was nervous about it. I mean, even though it must have taken him a long time to write, or days at least, maybe weeks to to write that letter, he was afraid it would push them over the edge. But when he writes Second Corinthians, he's relieved because they've submitted his authority, or have they? I mean, they at least appear to have submitted to his authority. So there, there was a lot of tension between him and the Corinthians right before Second Corinthians. He's, he's, there's this huge release at the beginning of Second Corinthians. He is just so relieved um, that he that he at least thinks for the moment that they're on this back on the same basic page again. So even though even though I said you know I don't know that they've undergone a lot of suffering, there has been turmoil that has been part of. And I would say when we can when we conflict with people who are very meaningful to us, that's a kind of suffering. You know, it's not it's not like persecution, but it it's very stressful. It's no less real though. I mean, when there <clears throat> is drama. I mean, I'll just sometimes say it privately to my wife. I'll use the phrase, you know, she'll hear me exhale, you know, and be a little, a little tired, you know, and she'll say, what's going on? And sometimes I'll just say, oh, just drama at work, right? That's a phrase I'll use sometimes. And it's, it's not, I'm not talking about my tasks. It's interpersonal stuff. Since 
you know, you, you know what it was like, uh, living in, in the fishbowl of, uh, of a small town with a college town, you know, it's like, well, I mean, these are our, these are our friends and neighbors and our kids play together. So I don't always want her to, she doesn't need to hear the names and the details. Right. (laughs) Um, and she, she does me the same favor. We don't always get into the weeds, but we'll just say, yeah, just, you know, just some drama and that interpersonal drama. I mean, we say sticks and stones and break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But man, the, the interpersonal turmoil is just, it it can be just debilitating. And I don't think we should downplay that as a lesser form of suffering. If you're preaching this, you've got a wide variety of sufferings that you can invoke as background to this. There's both the interpersonal turmoil that Paul and the Corinthians have experienced, but there's also Paul's suffering in the world with anti-Christian forces and, and so forth. I think in my reading of this, all of this is background to Paul basically saying, look, Jesus suffered too. Jesus was obedient and had faith through his time of suffering. We will rise with Christ just as Jesus rose. And in the meantime, we are being renewed inwardly, even though our outward person may be facing uh, hard times. That's my read of this passage. No, I love it. That's really good. That's really good. So just, you know, staying with that for a moment, light momentary affliction, but preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Anything you want to just add just to clarify that a little bit, the languaging, the imagery here, and this resurrection talk, I imagine, but what else would just be helpful before we go to our last segment? Well, I don't know if you were King Jamesing it when you were reading it earlier. I love the way the King James, our light and momentary affliction. I, I love that that phraseology. I do take it in terms of uh, the comparison, you know, you know, let's say that I end up crucified, or let's say that I end up drawn and quartered. Um, you know, they, they tie a, one horse to one arm and another to another and set them off, you know, no matter what gory or horrible end I might uh, meet, none of it compares to the weight of eternal glory. I think we see that in Philippians 3, where Paul's basically saying, yeah, I had an OKCV, you know, it's nothing compared to Jesus. That that when we put things in perspective, there just isn't anything that we can undergo here that is significant at all compared to to that which awaits us in uh, in eternity. I don't know if you had another thing in mind. No, I wasn't fishing for anything. I just... It's it's such interesting phrasing that oh, I yeah. just it's hard sometimes for me to even track the logic and I think I think you helped clarify it. The, this light that uh, maybe I'm overstating you. Yeah, <laughs> just but to scratch. Just but to scratch. Was, your arms uh, off. Is the language of light and heavy light and weight in an intentional contrast, or am I reading? I, you can almost oh. see scales, right? Sure. And so, like. It's not, it's not that the suffering isn't real. It can be very real. It's a comparative claim. So yeah. no matter how great it is on the scales, it's no comparison, right? And, and if you've ever, and it, you could even think of that, you know, in, in a sermon, you could have a visual image, right? You could have this heavy weight of the pain, you know, adding, you could keep adding stones and it can keep going down heavy. And then you can kind of put a big, you know, some big, you know, heavy object on the other side of the scale and it, and the scale topples over, right? There's a limit to how much you can do. And it's this notion that there's not even, there really aren't even on the same scale. 
you can't even do the math because of the weight of glory. And I love the language of weight helps us to remember the bodily character of our resurrection, right? It's not that we're weighed down. I mean, the way the Greeks, pagans would talk would be to say, we are weighed down by this body, but when we die, our soul is light. It will go up, right? So he's almost inverted the pagan imagination of immortality by saying, no, the, the bodily sufferings we have now is this kind of, that's actually the light thing. And the heavy thing is this, this new body that's coming, you know, from the resurrection power of God. I don't know if that, I might be saying too much now, but the, well, the, it's, it's at least an inversion. It's definitely the inversion yeah. of imagination. Yeah. And the, the outer and inner person, I mean, we don't want to um, take this too literally in terms of body and soul, you know, and that, that's not the point. But we get what he's saying, I think, this, this sense that yeah. um, we, can, we can be facing external pressures um, yes. and, yet, and yet have a peace uh, from God uh, that's inside of us and that, that is being renewed. No, as you know, Viktor Frankl, I always quote him, you know, that a person with a why can live with any how. You know, that no matter what the right. external circumstances are, the external, the out, outer person, um, our inner person can be um, – in a constant state of renewal. Yeah. You almost get three things here, right? The 16 is the inner and the outer and the 17 is the light and the heavy. Yeah. The light and the heavy, right. And the temporary and the permanent, which kind of go together. And then 18 is the, the seen and the unseen. Right. This reminds me of Hebrews. I mean, there's a number of aspects of this passage that remind me of Hebrews. Yes. Uh, Hebrews 11 has a lot about, uh, you know, looking at what's, not seen rather than what is seen. Abraham, you know, he didn't look at to what was seen, uh, but he looked to what was, you know, the, the, the heavenly city and so forth. By faith, we believe the worlds uh, have come to exist, uh, not from things that appear, but that which is not seen. Uh, so whoever the author of Hebrews was, I kind of feel like he must have been engaged, in, have engaged these ideas at some point with, with, uh, or p- perhaps Paul is drawing on the author of Hebrews, but um, they're in the same orbit, I think. Drawn from the same wells, at least, which goes back to that earlier discussion we were having about um, the teaching and life of Jesus and what impact it had as it made its way into a, a Greek-speaking Mediterranean early Christianity and who knows, maybe it had more of a direct impact than, you know, some modern theories who want to put a wedge between the Jesus movement in Palestine and the, the Christian church that rose in the Mediterranean. Yeah, they spoke a different language and had some different questions and concerns, but there's maybe some common wells here, you know, yeah, cross-pollinating and influencing each other. And some of the, some of the more recent work in oral tradition I think has burst the bubble of, uh, you know, that, that Jesus tradition didn't wait until after he died to start. It didn't wait until, you know, Oh, the apostles are dying. We need to write this down. I mean, those are, those are really, I think some of them are literary culture perspectives rather than oral culture perspectives. But, but I mean, the Jesus tradition would have been even long before Jesus died on the cross, oral traditions about Jesus would have been, would have been circulating. Um, so unless we want to, yeah. say, unless we want to say that it's all made up, unless you want to say that all of the Jesus teaching and stuff is just all made up, which I don't think any of us want to do, 
then we have to assume that these traditions about Jesus were were going everywhere. And even the language of inner and outer here in 16 fits very well with a lot of language that Jesus uses. You know, it's not it's not uh, what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but what comes out, you know, I mean, it's different, but it, it yeah. it's not a complete aberration. Well, this is really cool. Let's take a break and come back and explore some sermon starters for a couple minutes. Okay. All right, we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Ken Shank, and uh, we're looking at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 13 through chapter 5, verse 1. We just have a few minutes left here uh, to explore any sermon starters. On the break, I was just talking about how I just finished uh, recording an episode with Mandy, my wife, preacher extraordinaire. And of course, I always watch the time very carefully to make sure the, the preaching segment is super long, right? But with Ken and I, I don't care about that. We really geek out and then, you know, oh, five, 10 minutes on, oh, that's fine. It all evens out in the end, right? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, with the time we have, uh, what would you want to, if you were being called on to, to preach on this text or teach or lead others, where would be your angle, your focus? What would really be the the take that you think would be helpful to others? Well, I mean, if I, if I were to preach this this Sunday, I would no doubt focus on that light and momentary affliction, I think, verse, probably focus in on that as my key verse. Obviously, that's not the only uh, way to approach this, but I would, I would play into Paul's context. You know, I would give them my, again, my perspective, not necessarily right, but that Paul has just been jailed in a, in probably I would say the most serious jailing of his life so far. That you know before when he's in Philippi, you know these other times it's been yeah yeah I'll, I'll get out of this. But my sense is is that that the experience he's just had in Second Corinthians one eight, he really has thought I might actually die from this. Now again maybe I'm wrong on that setting, but Paul has been through a very stressful time in his context and. He's also undergone this horrible conflict with the Corinthian church that he just can't seem to get them where he thinks they need to go. And actually, if you go to the end of Second Corinthians, it turns out, oh, I thought we were back on the same page, but I guess not. Um, I mean, the Second Corinthians ends with, I, I think, Paul almost in despair. Uh, I mean, Paul shows different emotions at various places in his writings, anger in Galatians, serenity in Philippians. But he's almost, I think, at the point of despair at the end of, of Second Corinthians. And there's a line that he writes at about the same time in Romans. There's no more room for me to work in these regions. It's almost like I got to move on. I, so, But for this brief moment of time, he feels like it's all evened out a little bit with the Corinthians. And he's basically saying, OK, we've we've had a really tough run here. I've had a really tough run of it here. But this light and momentary affliction, it's nothing compared to the, the 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 weight of eternal glory that faces us. And, and remember, Jesus suffered too. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Hebrews 12.1, let's run with patience the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, who for the, for the prize that was set before him endured the cross. And so I think if I were to preach this, I would focus on this idea that we keep our eye on what is what is unseen, which is this is on Christ and eternity. And we don't get, don't let these out outer afflictions tear us down in, in the meantime. Anyway, if I were to preach it, that's probably 
what I would what I would focus on. What would you focus on? Yeah, well, I'll add a tag to that, and then I'll mention where I might run with it. But uh, just the tag with that is is verse eighteen. We didn't spend a lot of time with this word, but this is this is often how I approach it. Right, is I'm. I just dig into a text and then I kind of have a focus. And then that focus sometimes then leads to another exegetical question that I would chase down. And I'd recommend listeners to consider that. But, you know, I, I would want to do a word study then if I, if I was preaching a sermon along those lines, Ken, on this verb in verse 18, scopuntone, right? Not, not, uh, I mean, translations are that we had were, were relatively dull, right? Not looking. Scoping right? out. That's the, I mean, it's, it's not an accident. I, I mean, I'd want to double check. I don't want to uh, commit the etymological fallacy as you taught me to be aware of, but or an anachronism here. Yeah. Or an anachronism, but nevertheless, maybe look at some other uses of that term throughout the new Testament, fill out the meaning a little bit and then acknowledging the anachronism. But I mean, now you have an image, right. Of a scope, yeah. right. What am I, focusing in on what is my attention on i i there's this great kids book called zoom zoom you could totally use this in a sermon where it's like zoomed in you're like there's this one little picture and then it comes out and oh it's a chicken and then you keep zooming out and it's oh a little play you know like a little it's a farm and then it zooms out and you realize it's actually a a, a kid's farm, a, a toy. And then you zoom out and actually it's a picture on a magazine and out and out and out, right? That kind of thing, right? Until you just see the earth as a little dot in in the universe, right? And that ability to zoom out is a spiritual practice. So that ability to kind of have that kind of macroscopic view and then a microscopic view of zooming back in, what do we zoom back in on? which is these things that are unseen, which is really, I mean, I think if I was going to preach, I really love verse 14. I feel like verse 14 is just awesome. Just every word in there is so packed. It's that image that you had again of participation, right? That we will be raised by the one who raised him. And then that beautiful word of being presented, kind of being brought before God in a kind of official presentation together. That's not much of a sermon idea yet. I just think it's super cool, that whole verse. What'd you say about being announced in verse 14? Well, yeah, being presented. And now announcing Ken Shank. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's this kind of official, you know, now we are in the house of God uh, with this new risen body. I did a quick look at where scopeo is used in other places. Um, It seems to have a sense of, of paying attention to or or mark marking, you know, um, don't, don't just scope out your own interests, but pay attention to the interests of others, you know, ah, uh, Philippians two. Okay. Philippians two. Pay attention or Galatians six, watch yourself, be aware of yourself so that you're not also tempted or, um, Philemon join in imitating me and pay attention to those who live the right way so that you have uh, and as you have an example in us. So anyway, those are just a few places where, where that verb is used. Well, you heard it here, folks, a live word study by none other than Ken Shank <laughs> on, on scoping, right? Yeah. What do take, we pe- pay attention to? I mean, take this note. is at the heart. Yeah. yeah. Going to your other one, you know, I, I could, I could see myself preaching a sermon on imitating Jesus. Yes. And, climaxing with having the faith that Jesus had into death. 
having, you know, being obedient unto death, acting in faithfulness. There are several passages we mentioned earlier that I might climax the sermon with that, imitating Jesus, having the faith of, that Jesus had. And I know that oh, sounds, I love that. That sounds preposterous, I know, to so many probably listening to this. But I, I think that you're missing out on, on a theme in Paul um, yeah. if, you don't, if you don't see that. That is a theme that we miss in Paul, this idea of Im- the imitation of Christ. Oh, it sounds Catholic. But anyway. But to be drawn in by faith, by faith in Christ, we're then drawn in to share Christ's faith in God. That pattern is beautiful and powerful. And the starting point, the entry point that we keep coming back to is not our works, but our faith in Christ. But then what does it mean to put our trust in, to have faith in Christ is to take our cue from him of what it means to live a life of faith, right? And so that calls forth from us faith. I love it. And then all of a sudden, 16, 17, and 18, those last three verses there, and all the way into verse one of five, I mean, these are re- work really well as captions underneath the, the, during the last week of Jesus' life, right? But not just the last week. He experienced all kinds of suffering and persecution throughout his whole public ministry. So to see those, to fill those out with some uh, Jesus stories could be really powerful. Yeah. I dig it. uh, It's not in the passage today, but I mean, if you go on 5.1 through 10, uh, Paul continues on this, this, uh, this question of our life now and our life to come, our body now, our body to come, you know, being absent from the body, being present with the Lord, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Anyway, so uh, that's not our passage today, but. Well, that's great. That's a little uh, foreshadowing next week uh, with our guests next week. Haven't taped that one yet, but we'll be looking at uh, uh, second Corinthians chapter five next week. So that's a perfect setup. Well, I know you need to go, Ken, so I'll let you go and I'll wrap things up after you hang up. Uh, So thanks so much. Always a pleasure to be with you. Appreciate it greatly. Well, uh, to conclude things up, Ken and I talked about doing this uh, before we got on, uh, so I'll just do it now that there is a quote from Psalm 116 here, and we discussed at the top of the episode that uh, that these words are, are being heard uh, by the early Christians as on the lips of Jesus, and there's a number of uh, moments here in, in the beautiful Psalm 116 that uh, I think it'd be helpful to just just end with this. And maybe that could work its way into what, however you might be teaching this text to others. So here's Psalm 116 as our concluding word. And listen to this as prayers on the lips of Jesus. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my life. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he rescued me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. 
I believed and I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and forever shall be. Alleluia. Well, thanks so much for uh, spending time with us. A big thanks to Ken for the time that he gave uh, to our conversation today. Thanks to you, our listeners. We appreciate you uh, tuning in a week in and week out and getting the word out about the show uh, through various and sundry means. Thanks as always to uh, Todd and Eric as our production team behind the scenes. Couldn't imagine doing this uh, without you. And thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. And a special thanks to our patron saints uh, who support the show financially. I have a day job. I don't see a cent of that. That's for the production team behind the scenes. Appreciate so greatly you supporting the show. And if you're not a patron saint and would like to become one, or at least uh, see what some of the options are and some of the benefits that go with that, some extra content, uh, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text. That's patreon.com slash fresh text to see some ways to support the show. And with that, as always, we say, have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>